This is Salt and Spine. When I was younger, cookbooks were like my way of doing like anthropology. You can discover a cuisine and a culture and you know you kind of hope you're doing it right, but you like pull open like a modern Joffrey cookbook. You're like, I'm going to figure out how to do this now. And you get to kind of obsess over things in that way. Welcome back to another delicious episode of Salt and Spine, the podcast that takes you deep into the flavorful world of cookbooks and the minds behind their creation. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our featured guest today is chef and cookbook author Noah Galutin. After spending some time blogging and as a food writer for outlets like LA Weekly and Los Angeles Magazine, Noah partnered up with beloved barbecue chef Kevin Bloodsoe as his empire expanded. That led to a cookbook, the Bloodsoe Barbecue Cookbook, which Noah co-wrote. So he's working as a chef, dipping his toes into cookbook writing when the pandemic hits. Now, with a passion for innovation and accessible cooking, Noah debuted the Don't Panic Pantry concept on YouTube, and it became a quick hit. Noah and his, quote, famously funny wife, comedian Eliza Schlesinger, captured viewers' hearts and taste buds with Noah's unique approach to making mouthwatering meals, even when faced with limited ingredients or unexpected surprises. And so naturally, that led to his first solo cookbook, titled, of course, the Don't Panic pantry cookbook. This book is here, Noah writes, to say, don't panic. Don't panic about learning how to cook or environmental sustainability or nutrition. Don't panic about what to make for breakfast or dinner or midnight snacks because Noah Galutin has your back. Whether it's a last minute dinner party, a spontaneous midnight snack, or a challenging pantry only situation, Noah's expertise will help you whip up unforgettable dishes with ease. In today's episode, we'll dive into Noah's culinary journey, uncovering the inspiration behind his love for food, some of his go-to pantry staples, and the stories behind some of his most beloved recipes. Noah shares with us his wisdom, passion, and kitchen expertise, and reminds us that even in the most chaotic of moments, we can create something truly extraordinary, whether that's a broccoli pasta, of which there are no less than three in the book, or the mozzarella marinara that reportedly caused his wife Eliza to, quote, break down in grateful tears. Clearly, I need to add it to my recipe list and stat. So let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Noah Galutin joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Noah. Welcome to Salt and Spine. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Thrilled to have you um, and to talk about your your latest cookbook, your first sort of solo cookbook, yeah. right? the Don't Panic Pantry Cookbook, which we'll get to. But we always like to start by talking about you, how you got to where you are today, yeah. um, a little bit of your food path. So I know you grew up in Santa Monica. I did. Talk about uh, the role that food played in your life as a kid. You write a bit about it in the intro and yeah, your parents. I mean, for me, obviously, like my mom was a huge part of my food growing up. She cared so much about it. Eating dinner at home every night, like with the family, candles lit on the table was a big thing. Okay. You know, I was the uh, the quote unquote official noodle tester, which is a very exciting job for a, a, a small child sure. to run down. Uh, not quite ready yet, mom. <laughs> yeah. And uh, doing that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, my mom was like, you know, upstate New York Italian, whose mom was off the boat Italian and okay. married an Irishman because all the Italians she knew were in the mafia. Okay. And so uh, I kind of have this like, Italian-American filtered through kind of hippie California in the 80s and 90s is kind of where a lot of that cooking kind of came from, which I think, and which explains why I have like turkey meatballs in the sure. <laughs> in the cookbook <laughs> and things like that, which I've grown to love. It's not better for you, by the way. All you're doing is replacing the fat with more Parmesan cheese, sure. but yeah. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I was always just sort of a food obsessed kid, just passionate about it, like watching food shows. Um, reading cookbooks and always loved it and never occurred to me that it would be a career path. Yeah. Um, I was always kind of a writer first and foremost, nerded out on things like that. And then 
ended up uh, kind of waiting tables, bartending, writing for local newspapers, mostly about food. And yeah, my kind of foray into like the professional side of it was sort of uh, a little bit of a weird backwards path. Yeah, you write a bit in the book about how you sort of grew up in the shadow of Hollywood. So like those things <laughs> yeah. always felt like realistic and That's sensible normal. career paths. Yeah. Whereas like, like a food writer or cookbook author didn't quite. Yeah. Well, like, you know, so like it's like an industry in, in LA. And I think there's this myth around Los Angeles and Hollywood of being this like thin people who are all models. And yes, yeah. we have those. But if you watch a movie, the end of the credits are real long. And there's a <laughs> lot of people who do a lot of great stuff. And a lot of them are like just like old grimy transpo workers and people like <laughs> sure. that who are just sitting around eating eating like really good hoagies from from like you know delis in Long Beach. Sure. So you thought that was the path for you? <laughs> yeah. For well, a while. I just, I just you know I wasn't I wasn't nothing I, I even thought it was my path, but it just okay. that was sort of the normal thing. And the thing that I had no context for was like how do you become Lydia Bastianich? Yeah. Like <laughs> like that was like a like a superhero to me. Right. Um. And, you know, and I would watch, you know, Ming Tsai and all those people mm-hmm. growing up and and uh, and reading, you know, like Marcella Hazan cookbooks. I mean, the fact that my cookbook is made by the same people who made her cookbooks and who sure. made like Edna Lewis. Yeah. I'm like, like, this is like hollowed ground as far as I'm concerned. I yeah. I, I hold cookbooks in, in, in very high regard. And I think they're like things of great importance, yeah. even though uh, we have a, a lot of them. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So you you idolized folks like that. You watched a lot of food TV. You were, yeah. you were interested, but then you you graduate and you pursue theater. Did you study theater? Uh, playwriting. UCLA? Yeah, Play- primarily. And so I was writing plays. And um, yeah, because again, growing up in LA, like the idea of to me, like people want to be actors, they want to be movie stars, and I was like. The idea of trying to be an actor sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Watching people do that was like just, sure. like disgusting to me. Um, I mean, I have a lot of friends who do it and congratulations to them. But sure. yeah. And so I was, um, you know, writing a lot about food, learning about food, just obsessing and being able to like, you know, when you grow up in Santa Monica, you're kind of raised to believe that nothing good exists east of the 405 freeway. Uh-huh. And then you discover this massive diverse array of all this incredible food and like remember the first friend who's like went to koreatown and he was like you don't understand before you even get the food you order they bring you like 40 plates of amazing food and it's free and i was like what are you talking about and you start discovering all this stuff and you get opened up to all these incredible cultures and other cuisines outside of your the ones that you're familiar with right and one of the things when i was writing for la weekly was there was this barbecue place down in compton called blood so's barbecue Mm mm-hmm and again, Santa Monica believes that barbecued chicken is a grilled chicken breast with barbecue sauce poured on top of it. <laughs> right. And I went to this place, this this stall, this little food stand in in Compton with like four big smokers sitting outside, and you eat like a fifteen hour smoked brisket, and you eat like proper collard greens, and you're like, wait a second, what is going on here? And I remember talking to my friend James, who uh, owned uh, a little cafe called the Golden State. Um, which uh, is no longer there, but yeah. I was waiting tables there and kind of just hanging out. And I was like, this place is incredible. And we started talking about how cool it would be if you could be in LA proper and eat that barbecue and drink a beer and watch a game. Yeah. And so we started, uh, I went down and interviewed Kevin Bloodsoe for LA Weekly. We had this amazing conversation. He said he was looking for young people to, to do a little more of the work for him and do something else. And uh, we started talking about working together and he kind of, you know, brushed us off a little bit, but he invited us to his granny's 90th birthday party in Corsicana, Texas. Uh-huh. So James bought tickets, 
and we show up and all of a sudden these uh, two white guys show up at the Martin Luther King Community Center in Corsicana, Texas. Uh-huh. And Kev likes to say that we showed up when the record scratched and everyone stopped. And then uh, Kevin says, uh, these guys are real important to me, all right? And everybody goes, all right. And uh-huh. cut to uh, it's 1 a.m. when I'm drinking corn rye and singing Sam Cooke songs with a 70-year-old woman. And we kind of sealed the deal. Um, I ended up going to Compton to start training. I wanted to kind of learn everything about it. I was going to yeah. be the general manager because obviously I'm not a chef. Yeah. I'm just a guy who likes food. And uh, Kev sent me down there. Didn't tell anybody I was coming, it turned out. So I showed up and they are just like, all right, threw me in the back and I'm peeling uh, potatoes and cleaning collards and slowly learning the pit. And by the time we found a space, uh, Kevin said, you're the only person I trust with our food now because you're the only one who's been training with me since day one. Sure. And so he said, you should be the chef. And uh, yeah, and so we did it. And uh, I made a lot of huge mistakes along sure. the way because I didn't know what I was doing, but it was a massive hit. And then it kind of led me down this chef path, but I was always still a writer and was fortunate enough to be able to write a cookbook with Jeremy Fox during that time, Mm -hmm. which is another kind of whole crazy, amazing story. And it's kind of all these weird channels and different things all kind of came together at the same time and uh, and landed me in where I am now. Sorry, that's yeah. a very long, uh, expurgated version of this story. No, no, that that's really helpful and great. And and are those things sort of, so they're happening sort of simultaneously, right? You're, yeah. you're writing for LA Weekly. You also have a blog for a while called um, yeah. Man Bites World that yeah, it was had an, a lot of attention. It was an intentionally uh, limited run blog where I, I wanted to, again, it's about learning about my own city and I wanted yeah. to Find out if I tried to eat food from a different country every single day in a row, how many days in a row can you go before you run out of countries? Yeah. And it ended up being a lot, it turns yeah. out. <laughs> so, like four months, something like that? Yeah, it was Five like months? a it was like maybe a hundred, something like that. Okay. Hundred I can't remember days. exactly. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And you cheat some of them and you go like, well, maybe this counts as a country. Or sure. maybe yeah, it's uh, I can't remember. Like, yeah, does Hong Kong count as a country? I can't remember. Uh-huh. And what <laughs> what did you learn from that process? I mean, that sounds like a fascinating I mean, I learned, I mean, a lot, it was so early. And also, it's kind of what got me a lot of my early writing jobs were yeah. from then. That was early blog days. But uh-huh. I I mean, part of it is just just learning about all these cuisines. You start to have contact with them. Granted, it's like the epitome of small sample size, where it's like, I ate at this Pakistani restaurant and this Indian restaurant, and now I know the difference between Indian and Pakistani food, which, of course, you don't. But it's it gave you this incredible context for stuff. And you start to kind of realize oh, right, so this country is influenced by this country because these are near this. Like, uh-huh. I'd never thought about what Uzbek cuisine would be like. Sure. And then you have it and you get to eat, you know, uh, an amazing pilau out of a, out of a you know, a, a, a market in, in like Tarzana or wherever it was. And so, yeah, you learn all kinds of things that way. And also just from a writing standpoint, it just gets you writing every day and you don't really have time to rewrite and perfect it too much. You're just kind of creating all this stuff. And, uh, yeah, and it was it was fun, and and then I got to kind of move on to kind of longer form stuff and things yeah. like that, and it was yeah. And so was that? So then you meet Kevin, you start training, yeah. You, you start opening, you open a barbecue restaurant, you start yeah. opening additional restaurants. Yeah, I kind of became was like it sort the, of a split at that point? Did the writing go away for a bit, or yeah, it was less writing. I was still writing a lot. I mean, less when you're really opening a restaurant, you're kind of running around like crazy, sure. but um. But uh, the restaurant next door to us when we were trying to get open was a place called Cube um, at the time. And they were also a marketplace that imported a lot of great Italian food. And the woman who was curating that at the time um, was a woman named Rachel Sheridan, 
who had just started um, or was early on and relatively in dating a guy who she would end up marrying named okay. Jeremy Fox. Uh-huh. And Je- okay. Jeremy... I was uh, just going to ask how he comes into the picture, <laughs> but here we go. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's all kind of tied together in this crazy way. And, yeah. Um, and I got to know Rachel and she knew about my writing and liked that and thought that Jeremy and I would get along really well. And Jeremy had um, gotten a book deal, I think, back when he had opened Ubuntu up uh-huh. in Northern California, um, which is really Central California when, yeah. you look at the, when you look at the state. Right. It's one yes. of my big crusades no one cares about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he got this book deal and never wrote the book. And years had passed. And she was like, babe, you got to write this book. Right. And so honestly, like Rachel is probably the person more responsible for my cookbook writing career than anyone. Okay. And we got together. We kind of talked about what we thought the book should be, wrote a proposal for a book that had already sold uh, several editors ago. Sure. And they loved the idea. And I just kind of did it as like a, a back end <laughs> pro bono deal because I just loved cookbooks. And yeah. I got to work with Jeremy, who was this unbelievable uh, mentor and teacher and taught me so much about obviously like vegetables but cooking and so many other things and it's just one of the loveliest guys ever too and uh yeah so i was opening a restaurant while writing that cookbook with him and it was kind of an incredible experience those were happening at the same time roughly i think so i mean i remember getting up maybe it was slightly it's the timeline is fuzzy yeah around the same time (laughs) and at that point so you're working on the book which becomes on vegetables yes um really beloved book um at that point are you like okay i can be a cookbook author now did that start to start Uh, to fall into place then i started to think about it yeah Yeah. i thought it was an option um and that's i got connected with um uh, my current agent, uh, Allison Fargis at Stonesong, who I just absolutely adore. And she's one of those people who just kind of believed in my ability to do it. And, you know, they don't make money if you're not making money. And sure. it was years before I ended up getting the next uh, gig, which ended up being the the Bloodsoes Barbecue Cookbook, right. which, yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, so it's a thing that I always loved, but I, I, it wasn't a prime focus of mine. I kind of think I just hoped simply we'll just offer you cookbooks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it works that way. Not, not Turns usually. Out, no. <laughs> yeah. Not in my, in my recent experience, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was kind of one of those incredible things. And then, uh, and then opening our store with Kevin. And when we finally kind of had been able to take a step back from both being in the restaurant all the time, we finally were like, now's the time to write a cookbook. It also yeah. helps that ha- Kevin uh, has a, a Netflix barbecue show, right. which, you know, all that stuff matters in cookbooks. Exactly. Um, yes, that reach. Yeah. yeah. So you you worked uh, on Jeremy Fox's, you you worked on Kevin Bledsoe's books, you'd done two books at that point, mm-hmm. the pandemic hits, and yeah. you start this web series, or, or not even web series at the time, uh, right? It's like live Instagram stream Live. cooking show, yeah. yeah. Like Instagram Live, and I think Facebook Live too. Okay, but, uh, called Don't Panic Pantry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and my wife is an amazing and very successful stand-up comedian Um, and of course like everyone else every all of our plans got scrapped sure Um, i had been close to opening a new restaurant and was close on some spaces and they kind of had weren't quite right and thankfully i didn't take those she was supposed to be on tour and then we're just like well let's it's two weeks right that's how long we're all sheltering in place for and then we'll all be fine yes so Um, naive (laughs) yeah that's not how it worked out (laughs) no um and then uh we were like but you know we want people to you know, encourage them to limit trips to the grocery store, teach you how to cook with what you have. Yeah. And we would kind of plan out a week of recipes. So it's like, here's where you can do your shopping in one fell swoop. And also like back then, I remember, you know, you couldn't buy rice anywhere. Yeah. But then it turns out if you go to like, like you go to an Indian market and there was tons of rice because there was like this like deep Asian racism happening around the pandemic at that time. And uh-huh. obviously it still exists in many other ways too. Uh-huh. But it was one of those things where it was like, we were like, hey guys, like, 
if you go to <laughs> Asian markets, turns out they're not out of rice. So right. go and uh, don't be afraid of your neighbors, basically. Right. Uh-huh. And so you did, uh, well, now you've evolved and it, it exists on YouTube. Yes, now it's a YouTube show. You did several hundred live streams, a yeah, couple hundred live streams. Yeah, 250, I think. Okay. And what did you, like, what did you take away from that? You I were mean, engaging with home cooks, like yeah. lessons that you learned, I'm it sure, was, that influenced this book, too. Absolutely. It was incredible. And the, the sort of the slightly longer version of, of the story was that this book, another version of this book was very close to happening with Kanop right before the pandemic. And we okay. were in talks on the book um, with uh, Lexi Blue, my amazing editor, and we were kind of close on it. And then the pandemic hit, everything got put on hold. And we started doing the live stream show. Yeah. And it was really taking off. We got to like do the Today Show and things like that. But you get this like direct feedback from people. And one of the things that, you know, which I kind of knew and believed, but really hit home was you start to realize more and more how personal food is to everybody. You start to realize how intimidated a lot of people are by it. You start to realize there's just so many different ways of approaching it. And I always think like my wife would always sort of say like, what am I supposed to eat? And it's kind of this like eternal question of the book because it's so tied into everything. It deals sure. with sustainability. It deals with nutrition, deals with your health, your pleasure, your shame, what you want to look like, your relationship with your mom, like all these things are built into that. Yeah. And, and I kind of it was a difficult book to sell initially when you think about it because I'm really sort of trying to do this rational middle ground, this idea that you don't have to be a hardcore vegan. You also don't have to be this like bro food, bacon wrapped, like fondue sliders sure. yeah. or whatever it is. And that you can be somebody who cares about the environment, who thinks about their nutrition and their health, but also can like enjoy something like a, like, you know, a greasy, you know, mozzarella marinara in a in yeah. like a Italian restaurant right. with like a big glass of wine and have a great time with that. Right. Um, and that these multiple versions of ourselves can coexist. And so I wanted this book to be really accessible to people while hopefully broadening horizons in certain aspects, talking about all these kind of issues with sustainability and and food and things like that, but also not being preachy about it. Sure. And this idea that like better is enough and that trying matters and that, you know, you don't have to change every single thing about your life to improve the world around you and and yourself at the same time. And that's kind of sort of what I'm trying to do, that you can use less meat. You don't have to get rid of it. You can also have no meat. I mean, this book is, is like it says in the title, mostly vegetarian. Uh -huh. But I also wanted to be able to like make a, a barely beef chili. Or like, you know, that you can you can season a tomato sauce with two slices of bacon that feeds six people that doesn't have to be a meat sauce. And it's flavorful and delicious. And so those kind of things are, are things I really think about a lot with this book. And, and sustainability and all that stuff is all kind of tied into it. Um, and the importance of fiber is like a big, big thing I've learned in the researching of this book. That yeah. basically we're all... Everyone's obsessed with protein. Right. We're all getting enough protein. Right. Pretty much everyone's having enough protein, uh, but we're not eating enough fiber. We are a massively fiber deficient country, and fiber is probably the most important thing you can put in your diet to improve your health and increase your chances of living longer. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the seven sort of goals you call them that <laughs> yeah. you, you offer in the book. But all, all of that sounds wonderful and great, right? Like a, a balance, a, yeah. an, a, an approach to how you're eating, an approach to sustainability. It feels sort of, as you're saying, and I'm like, of course, and then it feels sort of lofty at the same time. When you're <laughs> yeah. tackling a book like that, where you have so so many of those stated goals around what you're trying to accomplish and what readers are hopefully going to take away, how did you sort of balance all of that? Yeah, well, part of it is like making them goals and not rules, okay. just kind of things to keep in mind that you can sort of attempt to to achieve. Um, 
And a big part of it, honestly, is just cooking for yourself a little more. And I think that when you cook for yourself, you have a lot more control over your diet. And you, this, I mean, I can rant on a bunch of different subjects around this stuff, but like, you know, the ultra processed food is what throws everything off. I mean, sure. human beings for in the history of mankind until like probably the last 75 years never ate too much salt. Uh-huh. Everybody was having the right amount of salt because you eat salt and it tells you right. whether you need more salt or not. Right. Yeah. And then you start, but then you eat a Cool Ranch Dorito and your brain like gets fried and it's like, I don't know what's happening. Eat more Doritos, please. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know if you've heard the term vanishing caloric density, but yes. it's one of my uh-huh. favorite terms in the world. Yep. Yeah. So the book that originally existed then, or the proposal that originally yeah. existed rather, was also a pantry focused book. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it's, they're both really my home cooking. Okay. Um, but I think we leaned heavier into pantry stuff and, uh, and definitely, yeah, I, I love pasta. And so it's, was no yeah. hard stretch for me to do this, but, um, I was maybe a little more health focused in the earlier version of the book. And then with the pandemic and I was like, people, I think other people like pasta as much as I do. Yeah. I think I can put a lot of pasta in this book. Yeah. So there's, yeah. And so now it's, and it's a little more of like an altogether kind of breakfast, you know, everything except really dessert, which I'm, I don't really put in the book. Sure. So you write in the book that you were raised to believe you should always under any circumstances be prepared to host like six people for a dinner party yeah. at, at a moment's notice. Absolutely. Which leans into this sort of pant- pantry stocking yeah. um, section that you have in the book. Can you talk a little bit for home cooks who are maybe newer to cooking about how you approach a pantry and what and there's a guide in the book, right? That sort of outlines things. Yeah. The one that surprised me was dried seaweed. We see a, a lot of these other things like beans oh, yeah. and lentils and salt and things. But um, the dried seaweed, I think I don't see on a lot of pantry lists. Yeah, people don't do it that much. But the thing about seaweed is, uh, and this is kind of like another little, I have a few like not too marketable passion projects that I try to like okay. filter into things. Um, but I read an incredible book called Eat Like a Fish. Uh, this Bren Smith book. Okay. Um, that's about uh, vertical ocean farming. Okay. And he was like a fisherman for a long time, um, got into the farm fishing thing, didn't enjoy it that much, and discovered vertical ocean farming. And uh, the thing about it is it's kind of an easy version of this cell, which essentially you're growing seaweed and like uh, scallops and mussels on like ropes that dangle down from like buoys in the ocean. Right. And when you realize that you can grow food that doesn't require land or fresh water, you kind of go, oh, hey, wait a second. That feels like we should be doing a lot more of that. Yeah. And seaweed is one of the most regenerative things to grow. It improves the ocean when you grow it, and it happens to be incredibly good for us. Yeah. And so those things combined, and so now you can have this shelf-stable seaweed that just can live on your shelf for basically forever, and you can hydrate a little water and throw it, throw it together or throw it into a miso soup sure. or whatever else, and all of a sudden you have this incredibly nutritious, incredibly sustainable and shelf stable ingredient that you can just have on hand all the time. Yeah. So I'm trying to find ways to get people to eat more seaweed. Yeah. I love it. Um, what other pantry tips do you have for people? I mean, the big tip is figure out what you like to make okay. and then stock your pantry so that you can make those things. For me, that's a lot of, uh, Dried beans, some canned beans when you don't get around to cooking your beans from sure. scratch. Um, pastas, olive oil, garlic, onions. I kind of cheat that like your freezer is kind of your pantry too. Yeah. And like in general too, like if you're going to make something, in many cases, you can make a large version of it that's just as easy as a small version. And then don't wait to freeze it till it's about to go bad. Just portion some of it off and freeze it right away. And then right. like this is the most dad thing that I've ever done in my life. But <laughs> yeah. I now have a reach in freezer in my garage yes. because like now I get to go shopping in my garage. Like, you know, it's last minute. My wife's out of town. 
The baby went to sleep at 6.30. I'm hungry. Oh, I've got minestrone soup that I made three months ago that's sitting in a, in a deli container in the freezer. And yeah. I can, or if you plan ahead, you can take it and put it in the fridge, which is a little better, obviously, for defrosting. Yeah. But you can also run it under cold water or just, frankly, throw it in a pot and turn the heat on and right. it'll be fine. Right, yeah. You say minestrone. I saw there was some Twitter activity about the pronunciation. Because <laughs> um, yes. I think many people say minestrone. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's... It's tough. I got into this with my wife once too about I said uh I said uh croissant. Okay. And she's like, you gotta pick. It's croissant or croissant. And I'm <laughs> right. like, no, I'm meaning in the middle. <laughs> right. Like when do you decide, you know, like like you're an asshole if you say actually it's pronounced Van Gogh. Right. It's like, all right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. come on. So yeah, I it's an Italian American word at a certain point once it filters in enough and for long enough. So I don't I don't know. Sure. Gabagool. Sure. I, <laughs> yeah. So uh but the yeah the Twitter one was funny because a couple of friends of mine at the launch party, one of them had only read it and I think he said Mindstrone. Oh, okay. Totally different. And one. so that was All and right. he got just uh, like eternally flamed <laughs> sure. from our friends for that. So that sure. was pretty good. Yeah. Um but yeah uh, yeah, minestrone. Like, how? What do I? It's like, isn't yeah. that the Jada de Laurentiis thing where yeah. she's like, and oh, now yes. we're gonna cook some spaghetti, uh-huh. and it's exactly great. And if you can, if you got it, flaunt it, I guess. But right. I, it's like they're different muscles to use different right. languages, and right. so I don't know. I we all have to have. But what do you say? I, I say minestrone, but I have no sort of Italian in my blood, and and what did I say? Minestrone. Yeah. It feels more like New York Italian, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. I feel like the New York Italian thing is you have to remove. The uh the la the vowels at the end. Yes. Yeah. It's like uh, mozzarella. Exactly. Gabagool. Yep. Spaghetti. Yep. Uh-huh. You just get rid of the last the last vowel. Exactly. And you're there. Exactly. <laughs> but you spent so little time on the East Coast. So true. But yeah. my uh, my mom uh, still likes to refer to things as if she she, she still lives there. Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. Favorite recipes in the book and favorite to loaded terms. So maybe places where home cooks they pick up your book. Where do you suggest they start? I started for context with the broccoli pasta, which I oh, made this yeah. week, which was delicious which one did and excellent. You, did you do? Um, the original, not oh, one of the variants. Um, yeah. I had a, a family member over who does not eat dairy, so oh, it great. was a great option. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I've, I love like broccoli that gets cooked down to like almost a pesto-like consistency. Yeah, and it was very pesto-like, but just purely from pasta water yeah. and, and oil and cooking it down. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great one. I mean, honestly, like the trick is like everybody else, like try to flip through and find something that you can kind of approach that feels sure. good to you that you're excited about eating and then make that one. But you know, I'm always trying to champion the recipes that don't have photos because when you yeah. write a book, you're not like, well, this one's not as good. We'll make sure we don't shoot that one. Yeah. Try to make a book of all really good recipes and then because of budgets and expense of a book, uh, you can only have so many photos. So there's some of them that are in there that I just absolutely love. And some of those are actually featured on the YouTube show. Uh-huh. And you can watch those, all the be yeah, all the episodes this month are all from the show. Um, but yeah, there's like a there's a canned clam pasta in yeah, the in the book yeah. that I just love. It's so good. It's like absurdly simple. Um, and we wanted again the pantry thing, like to find a version of that. But like canned clams are never gonna be as good as fresh. Yeah. But the good news is it's like you can throw a lot of other stuff in there. Right, and so we do. I we I do it with uh, <laughs> the royal we yeah, with uh, soy sure. sauce and butter and lemon uh, and parsley. And so it's this kind of like umami rich, and you can make this delicious, beautiful clam pasta in like twenty minutes, and yeah. it's pretty great. Oh, that sounds that's great. a fun one. The salads I love. I love making salad dressing. I love yeah. soups. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, <laughs> kind of like everything <laughs> in the book. <laughs> that, that's a great sign. Um, the crowdy beans I know have been a popular one. That's um, on social media. Yeah, that was a weird one um, that came about because literally my wife was like, 
You know, for her, like every meal is a surprise. She's never known that she would ever be hungry again if she wasn't <laughs> hungry when you asked her. Sure. So then it's like, wait, I'm hungry now. What can we eat? Yeah. Um, and so literally I was like, all right, can of beans, grab some sauerkraut out of the fridge. This at least will be very nutritious. Sneak some tamari in there and some garlic. And uh, and then we both ate it. We're like, this shouldn't be as good as it is. And it doesn't look great. Obviously, it's like white beans and sauerkraut. Right. It's like a pile of mush. Right. But it's like one of the most nutritious things you can eat. It's super fast. And it's like it gives you that kind of like bright acidic hit from the from the the sauerkraut. And uh, yeah, everybody who makes it is very skeptical. And then they all are like, this is actually very good. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited to try that one. <laughs> um, well, we're a show on cookbooks. Um, so we always like to ask about authors or books that have been meaningful to you. You mentioned Edna Lewis, a couple authors. Yeah. You also, I just want to um, read this, wrote in in the intro to the book, this, this passage that I love, that you thought about cookbook authors the way a starry-eyed ingenue in Kansas thinks about movie stars yeah. writing about, you know, never occurring to you <laughs> that you could yeah, become yeah, one yourself. Exactly. Tell us about some of the other authors or books that have been meaningful to you or who you're watching right now. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great ones happening right now. Um, and, but like, I always am going to have this fondness for like old cookbooks without pictures. Yeah. Like one of the cookbooks that I've probably cooked from the most in my life is uh, Shizu Otsuji's The Art of uh, Japanese Cooking a Simple Art. Yeah. Which came out in 1980. Uh-huh. And uh, it's all almost all like hand drawn, like little diagrams of like how to skewer yakitori and right. things like that. Right. And it's like the amazing textbook base level understanding of Japanese cooking that like totally changed the way I think about it. He also, it's 1980, so he wrote like, uh, you'll be a little surprised to hear to hear this, but in Japan we actually eat a lot of raw fish. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I was like, sure. boy, was he like five years early on that. Sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and so that book is an amazing one to me. Uh, what else have I been loving these? I really, really like the Walks of Life cookbook that oh, just yeah. came out. Those guys are doing amazing work. Yeah. Um, there's so many cool ones. I'm excited for Katie Parla's new cookbook, cookbook coming out. Yeah. Uh, the uh, food of the Italian islands. Mm-hmm. I got to see it early copy of that. Yeah. And I uh, did too. It's beautiful. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. She's, she's the greatest. Um, so yeah, so many books like that. I mean, for me, a lot of it too is like when I was younger, cookbooks were like my way of doing like anthropology. It's like, uh, you can discover a cuisine and a culture and you know, you kind of hope you're doing it right, but you like pull open like a modern Joffrey cookbook and you're like, I'm going to figure out how to do this now. And you get to kind of obsess over things in that way. And, uh, yeah, and like, you know, like Diana Kennedy was a person I read a ton of. Sure. And obviously there's, you know, lots of, uh, you know, interesting questions about gatekeeping and who gets to write the stories and things like that. But like, I learned a lot from her cookbooks. Yeah. And she's a hell of a writer too. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Well, uh, we always end with a little game. So um, perhaps no recent cookbook author is more prepared than you for this game oh, because wow. this is really a don't panic pantry game okay um so this is kind of a, a, a don't panic pantry live that we're going to play here <laughs> um it, it works sort of like chopped which i know you've also been on i have before, been on so you've also got that experience I hopefully um, we'll never to have to on. <laughs> make dinner with an emoji cookie ever again <laughs> yeah uh so you've got four de- decks of cards in front of you proteins obviously proteins mm-hmm. flavors herbs and spices uh vegetables and then the secret ingredients are sort of random ingredients wild cards okay um so you can draw one of each that'll be the basket that you're working with um that you've got in Do your I pantry as i go you can announce what they are and then tell us what you'd make with them all right protein we've got chickpea okay it's a great legume that's mm-hmm. what we got potato we're getting starchy already okay yep <laughs> i'm already yeah this is already probably leaning uh indian so far we'll see secret ingredients octopus well that okay that's a little curveball all right here we go 
and oregano. All right. Okay. So now right. we're kind of going Mediterranean. Uh-huh. So yeah. I think it's probably like a braise. I okay. think you do like a uh, you do like a red wine braised octopus with like potatoes, chickpeas. You cook the chickpeas in with it so they kind of get all going. Sure. Maybe you get a little like stock in there, get some broth going, season it up with some oregano. And then, uh, and yeah, kind of make like a braised octopus, potato, and chickpea stew. Mediterranean. Yeah. yeah, this is like a nice little Mediterranean. This, I feel like Katie might have a recipe for this in her cookbook. Yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel like that, that does fit the Italian South. Great. Let's do one more round. I feel like that was an easy one. I like it. Yeah. I guess at the end of the day, you can always just say, and then just braise everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. One more protein. Duck. There we go. Okay. Getting classy here. Zucchini. All right. We got a uh, a tomato paste concentrate, dopio concentrato. Okay. Make sure it's real important that it's the dopio concentrato. Yes. The cloves, I'm a little thrown off oh, by on this one. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Cloves, a strong, a strong flavor for this. Uh, boy, this one is going to be interesting. I guess one of my secrets from Chopped is if you ever get an ingredient you're not sure what to do with, make it into a sauce because then you can okay. kind of thin it out with whatever you want okay. to. Okay, sure. Um, but I think you probably do... You do a duck breast, you get it going nice, you make some kind of like a tomato paste clove kind of like glazy concentrate thing with some kind of like a strong liquor or something like that. Okay. So you can really kind of like do like a like a glazed duck breast okay. with like a tomato paste clove vibe and then okay. make like a make a nice little little like light sauteed zucchini on the on side. The side. Interesting. Okay. So like a pan seared dust, duck breast with the glaze. Yeah. And glaze it and uh-huh. somehow try to make it taste good with cloves. And <laughs> okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend this recipe, yeah, but, uh, but you can definitely do it or just put it all in a, in a, in a crock pot and braise it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Braising is always the answer. <laughs> Love it. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us on salt and spine. Noah, this was so great. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find a featured recipe from the Don't Panic Pantry cookbook for Noah's vegan minestrone with miso pesto. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.